563. Uh, this morning, you, when you came in, hopefully you were also, uh, in addition to your bulletin, given a little card that looks like this. Uh, you might pull that out and just want to reference several things on it. This is um, intended to be a, a summary of what we've looked at together over the last six weeks as we've um, unusually, instead of working our way through a book of the Bible, we've looked at what the scriptures say on a topic across multiple books. So these statements in white are the summary of what each passage is intended to convey to us. I hope you find that um, encouraging to stick on your fridge or a car or somewhere that you will notice regularly. You can work at trying to remember these statements and um, apply them. Last week, if you look on the right hand column in the middle, we looked at God measures offering not by the size of the gift, but by the heart of the giver. So give sincerely and sacrificially. We considered the uh, widow that Jesus commended as an example of that uh, giving. Today we'll resume that topic, but in a quite different way from a different passage. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, in a moment we'll read it. Uh, But by way of introduction, uh, my favorite kinds of movies tend to be filmed with a technique called in medias res. That is a Latin phrase that means in the middle of things. These are uh, movies where the opening scene is something actually that's going to come up at the end of the movie, but they front load the story by putting the conclusion in the beginning. And in that way, you see something that you're not quite sure what to do with. And then, inevitably, in a few minutes, the film will say six weeks later or one hour, uh, six weeks earlier or one hour earlier or before, something like that. And then the rest of the movie is about catching up to that final scene. This paragraph, chapter 9, verses 6 through 15, is in media res. We're picking up the conclusion of a lengthy conversation. And I want to do that in particular today so that we could see the conclusion, but then go back and watch the story as it developed all the way through to this point. Here at the end of 2 Corinthians 9, Paul's encouraging a church to give so that fantastic results will come. And there's principles here that apply to all churches everywhere. But they're embedded within a particular story. A story that unless you woke up this morning and read all of First and Second Corinthians, you're probably not familiar with the precise details. And so as Spencer Roberts comes now to read, would you listen carefully to the conclusion that we might understand the whole story as we work through it uh, together? You read for us, brother, 6 through 15. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. For one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency In all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. Thank you, Spencer. There was one person on this side that really liked it. Thank you for coming both hours and reading for us. In medias res, so if we back up now, what is this conclusion about? What led to this point in the story? Well, we know we got to back up at least a year and a half, probably several more, to really understand what has happened. The growth of the church in Jerusalem has been remarkable. We learn in Acts chapter 2 that as Peter stood and gave his famous sermon, and God saw fit that day to save thousands of people, then they were baptized and they become part of the first church, the church in Jerusalem. And that church grew and grew and grew. And with its growth came opposition. You see, the Jews that came to Christ in that early church began to live with a radical commitment to God. And it was a commitment that entailed all kinds of different understandings than had been present up until that point. And so the other people in the city of Jerusalem didn't like what was happening. So they began to persecute the church. And with that persecution, inevitably and eventually came poverty. You see, as the Christians' lives began to be impacted by the opposition around them. It affected them in every way, including how much resources they had available to them. And then on top of that, we know that a Judean famine hit. So you had a large church, you had a growing population of Christians, but you had a people becoming increasingly poor. As the opposition spread, then so also did the church. Providentially, what God used to send his missionaries out from the city of Jerusalem was, in fact, that very persecution. As people went out from Jerusalem seeking an end to the persecution, they took the gospel of God with them. And more and more and more churches were formed. Eventually, these churches became common, even in the major cities among the Gentiles. And as Paul devoted significant time to the ministry of starting these churches and encouraging them in their faith, we know from multiple letters in the New Testament that one of the things he gave great attention to was a special offering. His offering was to be taken among all the church plants and then taken back to Jerusalem. It was an offering designed to communicate to the original church 
that we love you. We're thankful for the gospel that came out from you, and now we want to care for your needs. You see, there's more to this story than just supplying their material needs. Their needs were great. Some of them were starving. Think about that today in our giving. Church, when we give to the weekly offering, and when throughout the week we provide indirectly to each other to help with needs, these acts are not merely keeping the lights on. They're not merely paying for a bill that one of us is unable to pay due to some circumstance. But they're rather additionally communicating spiritual truths. And this conclusion in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 paints for us the perfect picture of how giving is to work. See, this is a passage about how cheerful generosity works, what its function is. We could summarize the paragraph that Spencer just read for us in this way. Receivers of God's bountiful grace increasingly become cheerful givers of the same. Receivers of God's bountiful grace increasingly become givers of the same. What that means, brothers and sisters, is that you and I are all recipients of God's saving grace. Amen? We are people who were far from God, who could do nothing to deserve or merit a right relationship with God, and yet He, in His grace and mercy, offered us the opportunity in And not only offered the opportunity, but enacted the transaction that brought us in, in the death of Christ. And this saving grace transforms us. We who are selfish, childish, egotistical lovers of self, now are lovers of God. And when we become lovers of God, we inevitably become lovers of people. You see, there's a certain reciprocity among the kingdom of God. The Grace gifts given to us by God become grace gifts we extend to others by that same God. Now, that's the essential assertion of this text. But if you go through these 10 verses, phrase by phrase by phrase, I think that summary sentence doesn't say quite enough. There are tiny cracks in which some of the meaning seeps out. And so would you permit me to give you an incredibly long, clunky, verbose preaching statement? I hope so, because I'm going to do it. (laughs) This is a more Pauline way of saying it. He says, "This, this is the cycle of biblical, cheerful generosity. God gives which produces giving, which yields more getting, which results in even more giving, which glorifies the giver who bountifully and unceasingly continues his giving forever. That's what this paragraph says. Now, I recognize that is not pithy and it is not memorable. But would you spend the next 30 minutes or so thinking with me about the significance of Paul writing that. Significance for us. The significance for all churches everywhere. Let's just take it clause by clause. First, God gives. 
Brothers and sisters, any understanding of what you and I are to do with the resources God entrusts to us must and always start with the truth that God gives. Friends, God gives. God gives air to breathe. He gave you your life. He sustains you. He's given you people who have helped you become who you are. He gave you food today. He's given you laughter. He's given you the power to get up and try again. He's given you the personality you have and the skills you have. And some of us, we even have friends. He's given this church body as a family, as his body, as a lighthouse in the city of Tempe. But most importantly, God gives himself. Verse 15 puts it this way, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The inexpressible gift is the person and work of Christ. God has given you himself. Brothers and sisters, God is a giver. In sending Jesus Christ to earth, in becoming a man and living among us and facing every kind of temptation and suffering like us yet without sin and supremely in going to the cross to give his very life as a substitute, God gave. And every day, God continues to give. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says it so well, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. There is no coin in that verse. This is not talking about dollars. It's talking about spiritual blessings. Friend, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, unable to do anything of spiritual good. But God, in his great grace and boundless mercy, plucked you out, called your name, opened your eyes, imparted saving faith, and you are now his forever. Jesus did all of this by becoming poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. And not only do we know about this gospel that I've just recounted, but we know the giver of this gospel. You see, we don't know abstract theological ideas. We know the giver himself. He lives in us. Christian, have you contemplated any of those ideas recently? Paul literally invented a word. Indescribable. in order to describe the extent and the riches of God's grace. To understand how sacrificial generosity works, this is where we start. This is the foundation. God is and always will be the supreme giver. If we move on to this next clause, it says, God gives, which produces giving. Brothers and sisters, Receiving God's grace in salvation necessarily 
leads to giving to others as God's given to us. This includes all kinds of things. Many of you have spent time this week giving of yourselves to each other. By the grace of God, you did so because you've experienced grace from God. You see, we give love and forgiveness and hospitality. Right now, those of you who have little babies, there is someone watching them. So you can sit and hear and receive God's word. Many of you have shared meals together and spoken truth to each other. We serve the most practical needs in everyday life and use our God-given strengths to build up the church. We open our homes, but even more importantly, we open our hearts. We give because God gave. There's a reciprocity in the kingdom of God. But notice here in 2 Corinthians 9, all of that kind of giving that so typically makes up our conversation isn't the giving in view. Here in these verses, it's financial. So the picture is we give all these other ways, yes, then we also give of our wealth as well. Any amount of money you put in the offering is a grace gift given back to the giver. Now, those of you who are immensely practical, this will make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, but give me a paragraph, not just a sentence. Church, giving is not ultimately about meeting needs. There are lots and lots and lots of needs to be met. But most fundamentally, the reason why we give is not to meet needs. It is to worship our supreme giver. We give most fully and finally because we've been given to. We give as grace gift because we've received a grace gift. We give to make much of God. Do you see how pervasive that view of God is in this paragraph? You see, in the gospel, we who are selfish takers are becoming increasingly gift givers. And as we give, it glorifies and confirms the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel itself is at stake in our giving. Not mainly to keep lights on, but to keep the gospel going. Now, probably the most common question I've been asked in this uh, sermon series, which I've appreciated, is how do you decide how much to give? Well, this passage tells you. Look with me again at verse 6. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Brothers and sisters, the amount of your giving is a matter of freedom and conscience. According to the scriptures, there is no 5% rule or 10% rule or 20% rule or 50% rule. That does not exist. And contrary to what many churches do, you will never get a letter saying, we think your income is this, so you ought to be giving this. 
Why? Because God says, take it to him as you decide in your heart. As you think about what he's entrusted to you, then in prayer, perhaps in relationships with other people, but not in any binding of the conscience kind of way, you decide yourself how much you should give. And doing so, according to this passage, according to what you hope to reap. Now notice it says, the one who sows sparingly, so the picture is a farmer who goes like this with his seed. Boop. Boop. And he makes that sound, I'm sure. Boop. Boop. If you cast a little bit of seed, what will happen with your harvest? Not much. But if you cast much seed, Jesus says, you will reap much. Far more important, though, than the amount of the giving is the attitude behind it. That's the major point being made here is that God loves a cheerful giver, one who gives not under compulsion, one who gives not under constraint, one who gives not to earn, one who gives not to be begrudging, but rather one who recognizes what we've been given. And so if we were to answer the question to each other, how do I decide how much to give, the first thing we'd have to say is, that's between you and God. That's a matter of conscience. That's a matter that you must settle in your own heart. Now the passage does give us additional information. Remember, this is in medias res. So we're working our way through the story. Back in chapter 8, verse 11, it says, So now finish doing it as well. This is Paul telling the church, You said you'd give a gift to the Jerusalem church. Follow through on it. So that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your complete out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, now listen to this, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that you should be eased and that others should be eased and you burdened. But as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their, meaning the Jerusalem church, their need. So that their abundance may supply your need, that there would be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Do you see what's being said? Friend, you need feel no guilt at all. No compulsion to give what you don't have. We don't give on credit. We give out of what's been given to us. And so that means if God's entrusted to you $20,000 a year, then you give out of $20,000 a year. And you do so cheerfully and joyfully, not wondering, what are the people around me thinking? And if you make $120,000 a year, then you give cheerfully and joyfully whatever you so decide based on your understanding of what the Lord would have for you to do. There is no formula. And you cannot give what you don't have. 
Now, chapter 8, verse 15, comes the closest to what I think is a Christian ethic of resources. If you were to say, how should I think about what I have in relationship to what I should do with it to benefit others, particularly other Christians? How do I decide how to do that? Well, chapter 8, verse 15 seems to answer that question abundantly clear. No excessive material surplus. No exceedingly material shortage. No excessive material surplus. No exceeding material shortage. That those to whom God entrusts much freely share. Those to whom God has given little freely share. The amount of the sharing will not be the same. How can it possibly be? Because it's bound up in how much you have. But the result is to be that no one in the kingdom of God is missing essential needs while another is basking in abundance. This is a Christian spiritual ethic of giving. So, brothers and sisters, how do you decide how much to give? Well, we're to give fairly and sacrificially of what's been given to us. That's another way we think about how we give. But there's an even additional passage that Paul has written answering the question even more. Back in his first letter, at the, towards the end, chapter 16, it says this, Now concerning the collection for the saints. Again, he's talking about the collection for the church in Jerusalem. As I directed the churches in Galatia, so also you are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside something and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collection when I come. Friends, we give regular in association with church participation. And we do so without concern for the differences in how much we make. We give in proportion to what God has prospered us with. This means that some of us will give a tiny amount. This means that others of us will give a large amount. Both to the glory and praise of God. Do you see how incredibly relationally helpful this is? That we don't look at our budget and say, well, I'm going to take off X percent and that's it, and then I'll do whatever I want with the rest of it. That it's everything I have is a gift from God. And this week, what would he have me to do with what's been entrusted to me? Again, without concern for the fact that some in the room have more and some in the room have less, but what has God entrusted me with? Church, if we genuinely recognize the miracle of God's grace in our own lives, then that grace will propel us into grace giving. One author refers to this chapter as the gift of money being a visible sign of an invisible grace. Isn't that great? 
The gift of God in our salvation is not something you can view. It's spiritual in nature. So how do you know it's there? Well, one of the ways is that that invisible grace is made visible through the changes in how we handle our money. Now, probably everything I've said thus far has struck you as being rather unremarkable. Don't nod your head at that. There's been nothing shocking, nothing new, nothing surprising, nothing profound. God gave. God gives. We give. That's what I've said thus far. Blah, 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 blah. But listen to this. This passage teaches that God gives, which produces giving, which yields more getting. To say it more directly, give more and you'll receive more. Now, frankly, that makes me squirm a bit. How about you? That sounds like the preachers that I don't listen to because they're false teachers. And yet, in this case, that's exactly what the passage says. Think back again to the farmer. Boop, boop, boop. The farmer who sows a little only reaps a little. The farmer who sows a lot, by God's grace, will reap more. Now, I tried everything I could to get out of that. But that is what this says. Look at verse 8 in particular. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you having all sufficiency in all things at all times may abound in every good work. Church, as you regularly give, as you help each other in need, as you contribute to special things that comes up, God's grace will abound to you more and more and more. And God promises you that you'll have not a self-sufficiency, but a God-sufficiency, that God will sustain you and give you all that you need. Do you see all the alls here? All things, all times, every good work. And then verses 10 and 11 make it even clearer what he intends to convey. God will supply and multiply your resources as you give. And God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. What in the world does that mean? Friends, it means as you experience the saving grace of God, it starts a process in you in which you increasingly let go of that which you've clung to. And as you let go and give more and more and more, then God will ensure that you are getting back all that you need. And not only all that you need, but more. In particular, the harvest of righteousness. We could say it this way, brothers and sisters, as you faithfully give, then God will be producing in you a spiritual growth, a harvest of right living 
that you would not have had if you clung to your stuff. God will exercise your spiritual muscles and make you stronger in him. God will increase your experiences of his grace as you give. Friends, cheerful givers find themselves being the recipients of more and more of God's resources. But the cycle of generosity doesn't just stop there. You see, this is the shock absorber to everything I just said. The next clause explains the last one. God gives, which produces giving, which yields more getting, which results in even more getting. This is where the prosperity gospel preachers get it wrong. They teach if you do X, then God will do Y, and you can have your Ferrari and your 5,000-square-foot home and your vacations and everything you ever wanted. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God gave. And that because God gave, because you are settled in a right relationship with him, then the experience of that free love begins to flow out to others, even in our money. And as it flows out to others, then God will ensure that there remains a flow back in. And you will be abounding in everything that God would want you to do. And that increase is not mainly for you. That increase is that the giving might increase. This is the reciprocity of the kingdom of God. If God entrusts you with more, you're to give more. That's why it's been given to you. Notice in particular, the first half of verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. It couldn't be more clear. So think practically with me. Friends, a, a raise at work, a surprisingly large inheritance, an unusual bonus you didn't expect, a scholarship you weren't counting on that now pays for that which you saved for college. Friends, as we give faithfully and sacrificially any, quote, return on that grace giving, any attendant increase in resources is designed by God that you might give still more. That's what it's for. So to make this immensely practical, somebody making $20,000 cannot give anywhere near the same amount as somebody making $120,000, right? I struggled with math, but I think that one's pretty easy. Why does the one make 120? Because God has chosen to entrust that one with that level of resources that they might give more. Part of our struggle here is that any 
increase in income almost always is preceded by an increase in lifestyle. And so it's incredibly easy to be making 120 when you used to live on 20. And at 120, don't have anything more, actually, than you had at 20. Isn't that insane? But that's exactly what happens. Because our lifestyles slowly do this and this and this and this. When God's saying, my child, I love you. It is better to give than to receive. So what I give to you and trust to others. Receivers of God's grace look not to do the minimum, but as we receive more, we aim by grace to give still more. Now, where does all this go? What's its purpose? What does it accomplish? God gives, which produces giving, which yields more getting, which results in even more getting, which glorifies the giver who bountifully and unceasingly continues his giving forever. Friend, would you take a few minutes later today and reread this passage? Read it out loud. And listen for all the ways the emphasis is on God. The Bible is about God. And this paragraph is about God. Listen to just a few of the verses, these phrases from them. Verse 11, thanksgiving to God. Verse 12, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, they will glorify God. Verse 14, surprising grace of God. Verse 15, thanks be to God. Friends, giving is about God. God is the bountiful and unceasing giver. We give because he gave. And in so doing, we magnify the one who has changed us and is even making us more and more and more like the giver. This is the grace of God. Grace that not only reconciles us to him, but then allows us to be part of the work of reconciliation of others. It's incredible. Now we're at this moment in the scene, scene in which Paul tells his church, you need to give. Give to this work. Well, they did. We know from Romans, we know from Acts, this church responded with generosity. And these gifts were taken from all over, carried with multiple people back to the city of Jerusalem. And imagine being there in that moment when these poor Jews receive wealth from Gentile churches. They rejoiced and the grace of God given to them. Think with me about the spiritual significance of that. The gospel had gone out from Jerusalem among people, even those closest to Jesus, were absolutely clueless that the gospel would save people, not Jews. And yet the gospel went out across every socioeconomic racial boundary, saving who would have been seen as the unsavable. 
And not only did it save them, but these Gentile Christians then gave generosity, gave of their generosity back to that church. And what did that say to that church? It confirmed the dynamic power of the gospel. That the gospel not only changed the Jews, it changed the Gentiles. It created a new people group. A people who operate toward each other in ways that are completely different from the world. Not by our highest degree, not by the neighborhood or apartment we live in, not by what we wear, not by the color of our skin, not by our grammar, but people who operate on the currency of grace. People who relate to one another as equals, co-heirs, brothers and sisters. Church, this is what our giving is about. It's about making the invisible gospel visible so that more and more people to the glory of God would know the giver. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray.